All right, Acts chapter 6, we're picking up um, at the end of chapter 5. It, it tells us what the church was up to on a daily basis by telling us that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. And we, we talked about that last week. Uh, David likened it to um, beggars telling other beggars where the bread is. That's what they were out doing on a daily basis. They were telling people about the bread of life and how they could come to him and, and enjoy uh, real life. And apparently when you do this, people come to know the Lord because chapter 6 starts out by telling us that the church kept increasing in number. Growth is great. It's kind of what we want to see happen in our churches. Uh, it's exciting, but it also creates challenges and challenges that, that need to be addressed. We experienced this when we first planted this church um, at the, you know, the little coffee shop over there. Uh, we started out with about 20 people and we quickly doubled. And then we quickly doubled again, and it's a little overwhelming. This is nothing even like what the early church was experiencing. This is much smaller scale, but we had to start figuring out how to shepherd all of the people that God was bringing our way. So over the years, a lot of adjustments have had to have been made uh, to support the growth, and, and even adjustments we never thought we would have to make have had to have been made. It, growth can be very good, but growth means change, and change can be difficult. But a church that isn't growing is a stagnant church. It's a dying church. And that describes far too many churches today, unfortunately. We often hear people say that the door isn't the same as it was when it started. And that's absolutely true. <laughs> we're really not a whole lot like we were when we started. Um, ironically, if you've been here from the beginning, that includes you. So there, you've changed too, right? I can't tell you how much over the last eight years I've changed. I'm reminded, I say this at weddings a lot, but there's an old quote that says, my wife's been married to at least five different men over the years, and all of them have been me. Um, we change over the years, and, and, and sanctification is something that's real in the life of a Christian. Uh, God's Spirit applied by, or God's Word applied by God's Spirit creates radical transformation. And so we've watched lives radically change over the years, and it's really cool to see. It's exciting to be a part of. Change means that there's signs of life. And that's a very good thing. So the question isn't how do we prevent change, even though that's kind of my, my way of thinking. The question is how do we embrace the changes that God brings us and how do we make the most of them? Because if you're like me, I, I'm not a big fan of change. I like things to be very warm and familiar and cozy and, and comfortable. And, and I, I've mentioned to you before that I've been told that I'm not adaptable. And I think there's probably some truth to that, according to my wife and everybody that knows me. Um, but change is going to happen. It's inevitable. And very oftentimes, it can be the best thing for us, even when we're resistant to it. For example, I did not want to move to Oregon. I actually made this statement to somebody that, that said something to me about it, that I will never move to Oregon. I mean, I, I think I even said, like, mark my words, you know, read my lips. I will not move to Oregon. And within a year, guess where I was living? Yeah, Oregon. And this is something that I didn't want to have happen. I lived in Idaho. I liked it there. My family was there. But I look back at the wisdom of God and, and, and how he did this thing that I would have never chosen. When we got here, we lived, moved in right next door to David and Carrie Thompson. So you can kind of see the path that God had us on as, as a family. And, and this church, you know, being a part of this now is all part of all of that. So I'm thankful and grateful for changes that happen, even the ones that I'm not a big fan of, because God uses them for our good. So this morning, we're going to consider what changes um, are needed 
to have a growing and healthy church. We'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 6, where it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I probably lost some of you right there, so I'll explain that a Hellenist is not a person that worships Helen. That's what it sounds like to me when I see it. It's a Greek-speaking Jew. So you had your Aramaic-speaking Jews who who kind of were the, the inside Jerusalem folks, and then you had the Greek-speaking Jews that were kind of the outside Jerusalem spokes, folks. So you had this almost kind of like a clique in the church, uh, the, the insiders and the outsiders, the, you know, the locals and the, the other people kind of thing was going on. And somehow in that, they were neglecting the widows from the Greek-speaking Jews. That's a problem. It talks about this daily distribution, and some of your translations kind of uh, immediately kind of connected to food ministries. It may have been food ministries, probably included that, but it's, it could have been just money distribution or other, other forms of help. But they would do this on the, a daily basis. We, we do a lot of that kind of stuff here at the door where we have food ministries and we make sure people are taken care of and, and we try our best to keep it equal. But somehow this got out of proportion. One group is being favored over another. So verse 2 tells us that the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. That's the whole church, by the way. They gathered everybody. And they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good men of repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmen- and I know if I'm getting these right, by the way, and, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. The key to saying the names is just say them with confidence, and most people won't know the difference. That's what I've relied on. It says, these, these men, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, we do that when we, when we bring in new leaders in the church. If we bring in a deacon or an elder, we bring them before the church. We lay hands on them, and we pray. And the real reason for that is you're committing them to, to, to service before the congregation. You're basically, they're bona fide at that point. You're, you're authenticating them before the church that these are people that we've recognized and selected, trustworthy leaders, they're there to serve you. And so that's kind of what they were doing there. And then verse 7 tells us that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests came, became obedient to the faith. So it starts out with the church increasing. And then you've got these problems that are going on that they have to solve and then it ends up with the church increasing. There's kind of little bookends there for you. The first characteristic we see of a growing and healthy church is complaints are heard and addressed. Verse 1 tells us that a complaint rose up, so the 12 called a meeting to deal with it. If you've ever been a part of a church, you know that complaints happen. They're, they're part of what goes on in churches. And we see this right from the start in the early church, and it's obviously still alive and well today. Um, it's not surprising because the church is full of needy people and, and broken people who have a lot of issues going on, and, and, and so conflicts and problems will arise that will need to be addressed. Now, the problem is that many of these complaints are voiced behind the scenes. And if you, if you look at the Greek word here for, for the word complaint, it carries the idea of secret murmuring. It's, it's the idea that they're kind of going around and trying to find other people that might feel the way they feel and, and create a little pocket of strife in the church. And that happens. We, we look for people that, hey, have you noticed this kind of stuff going on? Yeah, I feel that way too. Good, good. Let's see if we can get some more people into it. You know? And that's kind of what you see happening here. We need to be very careful that we're not stirring up strife and disunity when we see an issue in the church or when we find a problem. 
Complaints need to be dealt with. But the reality is that some complaints are very valid and some are not. In Acts chapter 6, we see widows being neglected. That's a valid complaint. That's something that needs to be. We know from the heart of God, widows are important to him and they were being neglected. This needed to be remedied. But sometimes we have concerns that, that aren't, aren't like that. If you have a concern, hopefully you'll feel comfortable talking to us about it, not murmuring to others about it. What we find is we often hear about things, and I don't know why this is. Maybe we're just gruff and grumbly and defensive and nobody wants to come and talk to us. I hope that's not the case. But we usually hear about things secondhand or thirdhand. You know, and it'll come to us in a roundabout way. And, and we would love it if, if there's something going on, come to us and talk to us about it. If you are thinking of voicing a complaint, we would just encourage you to ask yourself a couple of questions firsthand. And first, I would just say, is this about the greater good of the church? Is this about a healthy body and the glory of God and the advancement of the mission? Is that what this is about? And if it is about that, we need to hear about those things. If you evaluate it and it comes down to like, my personal needs and personal comfort and personal preferences, that, that can be a little different because we all have those. I have more than most people. If you talk to, I'm very particular. I was told recently by somebody, I don't think they're here, but they, they, we were out to dinner and we were talking about different things. And she goes, man, you are so opinionated. And I was like, I don't think she meant that as a compliment. I think, I think that was a bad thing, but I have lots of opinions and preferences and we all have those. So we need to be very careful. Because what ends up happening is we start to look to the church to fulfill those things. And I don't think that's the church's job. I don't think that's ever what the church was intended to do. We can encourage people. We can support people. We can push people towards the need meter whose name is Jesus. He's the one that really is the one who meets needs. We can't, we can't do that. He's the one who can meet our deepest needs and satisfy our souls. But there's a lot of pressure oftentimes put on the church to be kind of like a functional savior for people. And that's, that's not very fair. That's, that's um, something we just can't do. Now, oftentimes when people realize that the church they're going to can't meet these needs that they have, they move on to the next church because they hope that they'll be able to get met there. And guess what they find there? It's the same thing. It's not what the church is there to do necessarily is to meet personal preferences and needs. The same thing can be true of marriage. I, I've had to learn this over the years. You know, you go into marriage sometimes thinking that you are going to find this person that will complete you right? That's the, the big thing. You complete me. And it's like, oh, that's perfect. You satisfy my soul. You, you fulfill my joy and my happiness. If you've been married for very long, you know that that's not how it works out, right? To think that, that I am supposed to do that for my wife, Joy, who's not here. And she would tell you very faithfully, you know, I don't do this well. I am, if it's my job to satisfy her soul and fulfill all of her joy and, you know, all of these things, we're in trouble, you know, as a married couple in big trouble. I'm not going to do that well. So what we've had to do is realize we need to find that in Jesus Christ. He is the one who satisfies my soul. He is the one who fulfills me. He is the one who completes me. And when I have that, I don't, I don't necessarily need that now for my wife. She is a great encouragement to me. She's a great support. But I don't look there for, for what I get from Christ. I have that in him. And now she has that in him. And so we're kind of set free to be together in this beautiful relationship where we have Christ as the center of our relationship. And that's what we want to see in the church as well, where you're looking to him to satisfy your soul, fulfill your needs. And when all of us are doing that, then together, think about what, a, you know, what an amazing family this would look like. It's kind of exciting to think about that happening. But the idea of us trying to meet everyone's individual needs, um, it, it quite frankly just exhausts me to think about it. I think this is like, it would be so futile, even just on a Sunday morning. 
if you think about what we would encounter, you know, if we just had like, like let's all fill out comment cards and, and tell us what, what you'd like. Cause you're going to find out that some people are going to say, you know what, it's too cold in here. And then somebody's going to say the coffee is too strong. The music is too loud that, you know, the sermons are too long. We like it better when so-and-so is up there. I mean, you would literally have people say those things. And then guess what you would find on the other side of the fence? People saying all the same things, but just the opposite. You know, it's too warm in here. We wish the sermons were longer. Maybe that one's not a thing. <laughs> but, but you would find people that have preferences on the other side. And so what do you do now? Do you try to run around and, you know, make sure that everybody, okay, what can I do for you? Can I get you a footstool? Can I, oh, do you need a blanket? Okay. Do you, I mean, you, that's, that's what I picture when I do this. And it's like, well, that would just be exhausting. And so what I would encourage you to do, and this might not sound as loving as you would hope, is if the music's too loud, they make these things called earplugs. I've worn them to concerts with youth. I was accused of being like an old man. I'm like, this music's too loud. And I went and got like tissue from the bathroom and I felt old. That was a long time ago, by the way. That was probably, I don't know, it's pushing 20 years and I did that. So imagine me now, get off my lawn. I'm like one of these old grumpy guys. I had my grandkids for four days by myself while they were having the baby, two of them under the age of four. And I'll tell you what, by the end of the fourth day, I was grumpy grandpa for sure. I digress. You know, if the coffee's not to your liking, I'm a coffee snob. I don't love the coffee here. They do a great job with the coffee. That wasn't a knock. But you know what? If I'm going to have coffee, I'll bring it from home. And, And I'm just, I'm pointing out that sometimes we need to have that mindset that we see in Christ who put the needs of others before his own. And when we do that, we're loving our brothers and sisters. Our preferences don't matter that much. You know what? This isn't the way I would do it or the way I like it. Maybe that's not the, you know, I like the old songs. I like the new songs, whatever it is. But you know what? I see other people enjoying these things and I love them and they're important to me. And so I'm going to put my needs off to the side and I'm going to put their needs before mine. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That's what we see our savior doing for us. Did Jesus not put our needs before his own? Absolutely. He could have left us just as we were. And there's no greater example of love than what he did for us, who came down and took the form of man and went to the cross for us so that we could have life. That's putting the the needs of others. That's an example of, of what we're supposed to do for each other. That means dying to self, dying to our own preferences. Now, the good news is this. Um, people voicing their concerns in the church is one of the ways that God uses to grow his church. Part of our jobs as pastors is to humbly receive what is being said, evaluate it prayerfully, consider what's being said, and then decide what to do. And many of the changes that have happened here over the years are a result of that. They're because of responses to legitimate complaints that came our way, things we found out about. But there have also been many things that have come our way that we've had to say, you know what, we're probably not going to be able to do anything about that. And I know that can upset people and it can hurt people and it can make them feel unimportant. But there are just times where we have very definite reasons and ideas and convictions for the things we do and the way we do them. And when that happens, I hope we would have the opportunity to sit down and talk about that and explain it. And you might not even agree with this. You know, sometimes we agree to disagree as Christians and that's okay. But hopefully we have that opportunity to put the thing to bed. Because what happens when when murmuring starts up and it doesn't get addressed, what does it become? It becomes this toxic thing in our midst. It becomes dangerous in a church and it can split churches. Churches have split over some really goofy things. If I were to like ask you guys just to tell me, you know, what have you, I mean, stuff like carpet and we don't have them. It's like nobody likes the carpet in here, so we're good. But little crazy things like that can split a church in two where this half goes that way and that half goes that way. And and that's kind of crazy to think about. So the church is a family where everyone matters, 
We have to strive to be of one mind and one heart and one purpose and maintain the bond of peace and unity. I would ask you guys to pray for us as leaders so that we would have wisdom to shepherd and guide this church well and to truly listen to the Spirit of God as He leads us and be obedient to that because this is a scary thing to, to do well and, and a scary thing to, to have to be called on to do. So, well, next what we're going to see is how the leaders found a way to solve the issues that were brought up. So the complaints were listened to and addressed, and then what did they do about this? We see in verses 2 and 3 uh, that, that we need all hands on deck. Verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. Again, that means the whole church came together. And they said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The first thing we see here very clearly is church leadership needed help. And this shouldn't be surprising to anybody because it's pretty obvious, but it, what it seems like very often we, we see people in the church kind of think, well, they're the professionals, we're the congregation, so they're the ones that do the stuff and we enjoy the stuff. And that's not really what we see in the church. We are in this together. Everybody has a purpose. The church is likened to a body with parts that all have to function together. Every, everybody has a part to play. And that's one of the things I love about the church is everyone here matters. Everyone. Everyone is valuable. Everyone has something to offer. A lot of places you go to, that's not it. You're a participant or you're, a, you know, you're just viewing and so forth. Here, everybody has something to offer. Now, we have unique gifts, differing gifts, differing functions, different roles, different callings, but everyone is valuable. And it might be kind of funny to hear how the apostles phrase this in verse two. It's like, you know, hey, it's not right that we should have to go and serve tables. You know, we're not, you know, do you know who we are? You know, it, it kind of sounds like that. And that's not what's happening here. All that's going on is that they, they weren't saying we're, we, you know, we don't, we shouldn't have to do lowly service because they're servants. The very thing that they do all day long is serve. That's not what they're saying. They're just saying they've identified the calling and the role that God has given him. And they, they need to operate in that and let the people that God has called to do the other things operate in that. No one likes to think of the church as an organ organization. Like you pull out the organizational chart and you've got like, you know, okay, we have this and then we come on down and that it feels like dirty somehow. Like it's a business. We, the church truly is an organism, but it is an organized organism. If that makes sense. Um, we do have departments and department heads and people with doing different things and all of that. And people tend to think of the pastors as kind of, you know, up here and then everybody else is down here. But the way that the Bible describes this is that we are equal in Christ. We're equal, but we do have different roles. And it's important to understand that. What we're seeing here in the book of Acts, by the way, I believe is the origin of what we call the deacon board. We have deacons in our church and we have elders. This was, I believe, the start of the deacons. Some scholars disagree, but if it isn't the start of it, it's definitely the inspiration and the model for it. The word deacon in the Greek just means servant. You guys probably know that. Um, in our church, we have elders and deacons, and this confuses a lot of people. So I just, I'm going to explain it again, because I feel like we can't explain this enough. Elders, pastors, same thing. If you do a study in the New Testament about what an elder is, you'll find that it's a pastor. And if you do a study of what the pastor is, you'll find it's an elder. Churches tend to differentiate these things, but biblically it's the same thing. So there's one office of elder. There's another office of deacon. Elders also called pastors, so I'm just hammering that home to make sure we get that, oversee the entire church, but their focus is mainly on spiritual things, teaching, 
counseling, prayer, shepherding, doctrine, things like that. Deacons are appointed by the elders, and their primary focus is on the day-to-day practical things in the church, the administrative things, organizational things, the building, the food ministries, the daily distribution, as it were, as, as we see here. But all of us are servants, every one of us. At the door, we have three elders, Pastor Terry, Pastor Brent, and Pastor David. They're not here right now, but that was supposed to be funny, David. We have six deacons, uh, soon to be seven. Danny Hans is the, the seventh deacon we're going to be bringing on soon. We bring them on according to need. When we have needs and we have people available, we, we bring them in. Uh, the deacon's job is basically to take care of business so that we're freed up to do the things we're called to do. Uh, when we started this church, we had three pastors, no deacons. Guess what that meant? <laughs> we were emptying garbages. We were scrubbing floors. David still comes in and arranges the chairs every Saturday night. I think He'd, he, he's lightened up a little bit, but he's got this thing. So, but nobody else is going to do it right. So we just let him, but you ended up doing everything and, and eventually realized we can't keep going like this, or we're going to burn ourselves out. We're going to, you know, and so we had to basically follow this model that we see laid out in Acts chapter six and start delegating, start bringing more people in to help delegating can be hard because it's often easier. If you've ever been in this spot, it's often, sometimes you just, you know, it's easier just to do it myself. I know how I want it done and, and I'll just, I'll just do it myself. And if you have that in you, like I have that in me, uh, there, I think that's called pride <laughs> and it's not always good, right? Um, what ends up happening is you end up weighing yourself down and putting more of a burden on you than you need to. And you're also shortchanging the people in the church that would have an opportunity to serve and to help. And that's needed. Many church leaders are actually micromanagers. And, and this is a pretty common thing. Type A personalities. And they, they just, they don't want to really let go of anything. And even if they do let go, they really don't let go. We don't want to be that way. We would like to fully entrust people to do the work that's called to do. And oftentimes you're going to find that God has called people out there to do these jobs. And they'll, they'll be way better at it than you are. Right? It's almost as if he's gifted them for that very task. If you can imagine that. God has gifted the saints and we need to acknowledge that. Find out what those things are and and put you to work because you'll thrive in those areas in areas that we may not. So every one of us is important, but none of us is indispensable. (laughs) And that's sounds like a oxymoron maybe, but it's true. Can God use us? Absolutely. Does God need us? Not even a little. <laughs> That's kind of humbling to think about, but you know what? I could get, I don't hope I don't get hit by a bus tomorrow, but I could get hit by a bus tomorrow and nothing really changes. God's church continues to be built and continues to grow. And that's, that's good to know that none of us are like this, this piece in the, in the machinery that can't be replaced. Getting other people involved and sharing the load is critical to a healthy church. And as we see from verse three, you don't just want to stick anybody in there, but you want the right people in the right, in the right places to the specific task. And that's why you see them ask the congregation to choose individuals who have good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Uh, we've learned that sometimes you just find like somebody who's breathing and willing and you put them in a spot and, you know, hope for the best. That's not always the best way to do it. Identifying, you know, the right people is important. Sometimes people don't play well with others. Sometimes they're not called to that particular thing. Sometimes they don't have a good reputation with the outside world and they're not going to represent the church well. So we need to be kind of careful about who we put into what positions. And that doesn't mean that you can't serve in the church. It just means that maybe you shouldn't be the one in charge sometimes. Um, This is one of the reasons we take time starting ministries here. Some people get kind of irritated or antsy with us. It's like, why don't you get this thing started? Why don't you get that thing started? We typically wait until it's clear that God's provided the people for the ministry. When that's clear, we start the ministry. If we don't have the people, we don't start the ministry. 
Now, if you see an area in the church that is lacking or needs attention, and this is probably, you know, everybody probably sees a little something at times. We welcome your input. And I mean that sincerely, but I'm going to say, beware because we might also ask for your involvement. Um, what we've found sometimes, not all the time, is the area that you just see as this just glaring issue might be the area God is calling you to serve in. Does that make sense? If you're constantly thinking, well, you look at that, they're not doing anything about that. That's just sitting over there unmanned. It needs to be taken care of. I can't believe nobody's doing it. Maybe the reason that you see it so clearly and are so filled with passion about it is because God is saying, hey, why don't you, you know, maybe you should go over there and see about taking care of that. That's a possibility. May not always be the case, but that's all right. Church leaders need to learn to delegate, but we also need to learn to prioritize. And we see that in verse four. They delegate so that they can devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I I think some people sometimes have a wrong idea of what pastors are. Have you ever seen those little memes that say, you know, like what my mom thinks I do, what society thinks I do, what, you know, what I think I do. I'd like to see one for a pastor. It'd be kind of interesting to see. Maybe I don't, you know, society sees me just counting my money, you know, and, uh, you know, my mom thinks I'm wearing like a a priest's robe up here. I'm sure right now. I think some people think that pastors only work for a couple of hours a week that, you know, they come down from their ivory tower to stand here. And, you know, that's really not an accurate representation of of what we do. Um, But that's, you know, I get, I get why people think of it. It's even worse for us because we take turns preaching. So, you know, we only have to come down from the ivory tower once a month or twice a month. So that's, that makes it even worse. But being devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word doesn't just include what we do on Sundays. And I know you guys know that, but it involves a lot of time with people praying with them and encouraging them and consoling them and discipling them and correcting them and counseling them and on and on it goes. And in many ways, caring for the church is a 24 seven thing. It involves a lot of time spent with God and his word and study um, so that we have something to give to you guys to fill our tanks, to to then fill yours. Um, It includes time with our families. We have to make time for our families. We have to make time for ourselves just for the health of, of us. And so that means we have to prioritize and prioritizing I don't know if it's hard for you guys, but I have a really hard time prioritizing. I, I'm really like, even when I'm trying to like do my, my study, I'm supposed to sit down and usually, uh, I know this will surprise you, but a, a sermon sometimes takes like 20 hours or so to put together. And you guys are going, really? That seems kind of ridiculous for what we're getting. But you study it out. <laughs> I know you study it out. You kind of get to the heart of it. Then you have to distill it down to what you think needs to be said. And I like to write it all out, even though I don't read it. Cause I just feel like it's so it's, it's very time consuming. And so I, okay, I'm going to sit down at my desk. I'm going to prioritize the ministry of the word. And I sit down and I think, okay, man, I think Joy's plants need to be watered. I should run up and do that. So I'll get out and I'll do that. And I do have to water the plants right now. It's on my list of things while she's gone. And then I'll think something, you know, my sock drawer is a mess right now. I mean, I don't even have a sock drawer, but those kinds of things start popping into your head and you're like, that's a good thing to do. I should do that. And so you're constantly do it. It's like, what, what are you doing? It, it, you have to prioritize. Have you ever gone out to clean your garage? I don't know if your garage, well, I'm not, I'm not judging you, but a lot of garages look like a bomb went off in them. And so you go out and you think, okay, I'm going to tackle this. And you pick up the first box and you open it and it's like got photo albums in it. Pretty soon, like two hours later, you know, it's like, and you look up and it's like, oh, I'll get to this later. You know, and that's, we don't prioritize very often. A book came out several years ago that illustrates this very, very well. It was called the trellis and the vine. The trellis represents all of the physical, 
organizational practical parts of the church, you know, building programs, ministry, all those things. And the vine represents the people who make up the church. And the premise is that the trellis needs to be there. You need a trellis for the vine to grow on. Problem is we spend most of our time on the trellis and very little time on the vine. And, and you'll see this very often. Um, churches sometimes end up with amazing trellises. Like you just stand back and think, look at that thing. That is beautiful. But the vine is just dead on the ground. And, and so we have to learn to prioritize. And that's what we see happening here in the book of Acts. The truth is trellis work is easier. If, if you've ever been in ministry, it's actually way easier. It's less messy. It's measurable. You get to stand back and look at it and go, man, look at that. I did something with the trellis. People, you don't always get that. Sometimes you're going, oh, you know, it's, it, vines are harder. But that's, that's the point is to get the vine to grow. The trellis is not the point. So we have to prioritize. When you're considering how to prioritize just in life in general, this can be kind of a helpful um, thing. So if your main goal is I want the garage cleaned, and that's the big idea, then all the little things you do need to be moving towards the big one. If they're not, don't do those. Push them aside, delegate them, forget about them. When you prioritize, that's what you have to do to prioritize. And that's what we see them doing here. We need to make sure that we are focused on prayer, the ministry of the word. So we're going to delegate these other things off. This ended up benefiting the church. It benefited the leaders of the church and it benefited the church because it got more people involved. It enabled more needs to be met, more, more things to be addressed that needed to be addressed. And again, like I said, the way you see that the chapter ending is the church increased. So complaints need to be heard and addressed. Then we need to learn how to make sure all hands are on deck so that we're delegating and prioritizing what needs to be done. And the end result is hopefully that we see the word of God increase and the disciples increase. This is really what a, a healthy church looks like. The load gets spread out between people. Nobody's getting burned out. Nobody's getting sidetracked from the mission because we're all working on the same thing together. That's what we want to see ideally. And we are so grateful for the number of servants we have in this church. We have so many people who have just bought in completely to this church. This is their church. They take ownership. They serve well. And it's a blessing to them and it's a blessing to us. If you've never found that spot in the church where you're called to, to minister and to, you know, to fulfill the role you're called to do, I would just encourage you to start, start meeting with, with other Christians on a regular basis. Start going to the things that other Christians are doing. Uh, just go there with the intention of loving them and encouraging them nothing else. What you'll find is that pretty soon your role comes to the surface. Other people will start to see, oh, this is what you're, this is what you're called to do in the church. It just kind of naturally kind of comes up because I know a lot of people don't know. I don't know what to do. Start out just by loving your brother and sister and encouraging them and praying for them. Start there. And the rest of it kind of works itself out, I think. So verse seven says this, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests came obedient to the faith. I love the idea that as God words, God's word increases, believers increase. And there's no way in the world that I, we're ever going to see God's word decrease here. We, we value the word of God and we're going to preach it faithfully every week. And, and as the word of God increases, we can look forward to what's already been happening and will continue to happen. There's one little thing that this, this ends on. And um, I, I really like that they added this. It's kind of this obscure phrase about many priests coming to faith. And you're like, what's that in there for? And it's, you know, one of those things when you're, when you're in your Bible, sometimes you, you see something and you think, oh, that's interesting. And you just kind of move on. 
But I kept thinking about that. What does that mean? Many of the priests believed. Why would they add that? And you start thinking about who the priests are. Um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Sadducees. They were the ones that didn't believe in the resurrection. I'm not going to say the bad joke. But, but many of the priests were Sadducees. Well, you know what has to happen for you to come to faith in Christ? You need to believe in the resurrection, right? And I'm thinking about these priests who were so familiar with the sacrificial system. They, they, they were, they were in, in, entrenched in the idea of a lamb slain for sin. And now somehow we see the lights coming on in the life of these priests. And they understand that Jesus was the lamb. Jesus, all of this that we've been doing, everything, it's all pointing to him. And they believe. So this is no small thing that the priests have now, and it, for a priest to leave his post and, and get on a team Jesus, that's a big deal. They counted the cost. They understood what was at stake. And, and they, they decided they wanted to believe. Um, this morning, as we take communion, I would ask you guys to also consider the cost. Consider what it took to set this table. And I don't mean the people in the kitchen volunteering. I mean our Lord and Savior who was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to become the lamb slain for sin. And, and that means he did it for you. It was you that should have gone to the cross. It was your body that should have been broken and your blood that should have been spilled over sin. And yet Christ said, you know what? I'll step there in your place and I'll take that for you. And the reason he did that was so that we could have life and relationship with God. By placing your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, this table is set for you. It's a remembrance of what he's done, who he is, how much he loves you, and what, what lengths he was willing to go to to enjoy a relationship with you. So we're going to invite you to come up, take communion. If you're a believer, the table's set for you. If you're not, I would just say become one real quick in the quietness of your heart. Maybe this is the right time where you just say, Jesus, it's time to do business. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I recognize my sinfulness and I need you desperately. And then come and enjoy. So I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll enjoy communion. Father, we thank you so much for um, the church that you are building. You are building this church brick by brick, person by person, into this glorious and beautiful thing. We're, we're likened to your bride, Lord, and, I, and I, it's, it's such, a, um, it's such a, an odd picture to me because a bride is so beautiful and so valuable and so precious. And I, when I think of me being part of who your bride is, it just doesn't seem right. And yet that's what your word has called it. One day you're going to return for your bride. You're going to perfect her. Uh, she will be arrayed in white linen and we will be presented to you. And I, we can't wait for that time when we stand before you and are able to give you gratitude for what you've done for us by going to the cross in our place for suffering and dying for sin. We thank you that you are risen, that you are alive, and that you love us so much. Amen.